and welcome to Tomorrow. I am your host, Joshua Topolsky. Today on the show, we're going to be discussing Pong, sex robots, and the U.S. government. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Price Squarespace at squarespace.com and enter offer code Joshua at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. We're also sponsored by Need. Need is a refined retailer and lifestyle publication for men. Each month, Need sources and curates a selection of exclusive products from brands around the world. They're presented in a monthly editorial, a lot like what you'd expect to find in a typical men's magazine, allowing you to find the best products without any need for copious shopping or research. Need just launched Volume 2.5, featuring items from the likes of Nudie, Bell & Oak, Martial Artist, Serial, Nizzolo, and more. The new collection is available at neededition.com. They've also got their Spring Forward campaign running for a few more days, a small micro-collection to help you transition into spring at neededition.com essentials. Discounts are up to 50% off. Tomorrow, listeners who use the promo code, promo code, and yes, it's promo code, during checkout will receive 20% off their order. My guest today is uh, an extremely fascinating, I think fascinating, we'll find Let's out, see, we'll yeah, find out in a moment, man, he is an author, uh, he's written novels such as The Beach and The Tesseract. He has written screenplays for films you've definitely seen, films like 28 Days Later, Sunshine, and Never Let Me Go. And he is now a director. He's recently written and directed the film Ex Machina, which is in theaters at this moment. Very happy to have Alex Garland here on the podcast. Thank you for joining me. Uh, pleasure. Thanks very much. I, I, I know you've been, doing, you've been doing a lot of this, so hopefully this will be... Um, the greatest conversation you've ever had in your entire life. I have high hopes. Okay, good. That's good. So, so before we get into the, I actually, um, I was thinking about this conversation and I realized that I have a, a dilemma in wanting to talk to you about the, the film that you've just done. And, and for those who are listening that don't know, it is a, uh, uh, it is uh, we call it a science fiction film, um, about artificial intelligence. I think at the highest level, it's about, uh, AI, but it's not about AI, but in, I, I watched the film, and 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 so I started thinking about how we were going to talk about it. And in the age that we live in, there is a, a thing called a spoiler, right? And the film is not necessarily doesn't have some wham bang, oh my god, you know, sixth sense ending. Um, but there are parts of it that I want to talk about, and and I realize that if I talk about them with you, it will potentially ruin the experience of seeing the film for people who are listening to to this podcast. So. So should we just ditch it and do something else? I think we should just talk about games. <laughs> okay. well, we want to talk. You're going to talk about gaming at some point. Uh, I'm happy to talk about video are you, games. Are you a, are you a gamer? I am. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm uh, just about to turn 45, and uh, I grew up with video games. Um, and uh, like like my best friend when I was growing up, his parents. Um, got hold of this machine that had this game pong which is really one of the first disseminated video games now, pong, and, is, uh, pong is a a moment right in video gaming it's like sort of the equivalent of the monolith in 2001 or something it all stems from pong <laughs> it really and, does uh, actually yeah, yeah and uh so so i played that and then years a couple of years later like a 
a guy on the street, his parents, I remember, bought an Atari game system and then we're all playing Space Invaders and there was Pac-Man in the fish and chip shop and so it went on and, like, it's... Uh, I just never stopped and uh, I love games. Do you feel like you have to qualify if you talk about games? You have to start with, well, I'm 45. Or is that is that just to to, to put your position in the timeline of video I, gaming? I, I think it's I think it's just to say I always had them in my life yeah. in some respect. Like you, it's almost there hasn't been a moment. That's the same for me. I mean, I, I'm 37, so a little bit younger, but it's hard to imagine a time. I mean, I, we had our first computer when I was six or something. So every right. part of it. So I want to do want to get back to the movie though, because sure. I because I. I so, so my dilemma was: I want to talk about the movie. We're going to talk about it, and the question is: what is your what is your stance on this? Do you care if we talk about details of the film, or do you want to try to move around those details and talk? And we're going to talk about the ideas. I don't know, man. I mean, it's like uh, it's tricky. Yeah, I, I get the I get what you're describing. I, you know, I'm out here uh, just just to be sort of straightforward about it. I'm on a a tour of the states where I'm talking about the film again and again, and. Uh, I'm supposed to be trying to sell it. That That's what my job is. But right. if you're going to have a proper conversation about it, it's hard to talk about it without talk talking a, about yeah, you it. Can't so talk around what, it. what are you going to do? Yeah. So let me let me talk a little bit about the film. Let me set it up for people, um, for those who've seen it and not seen it. Um, it really centers on three main characters. Um, it is. It takes place in a single location, essentially. Um, maybe it's best if you set it up. How would you tell somebody what the movie's about if you were describing it to somebody? And this is maybe this is a bad question, but no, no that's fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, this is this is what I've been. This is the way I used to set it up for people, um, which is uh, uh, a young guy at a massive tech company, the world's biggest internet search engine. Um, uh, wins a competition to spend a week with the CEO of the company. And uh, when he arrives at this guy's mountain retreat, um, he discovers he's not there just to spend a week kind of hanging out with the boss and uh, maybe picking up a promotion after bonding and that kind of thing. Um, he's actually there to take part in a in a test, a kind of experiment. And, and what it is, is it's uh, a test to see if a machine is sentient or not, whether it has a consciousness which is uh, any way like ours, which you could broadly say has some similarities with the Turing test, although there's also differences as as are then discussed within the film. Yeah, the Turing test comes up early. In the, in the it comes film. up early because I think the Turing test has become a shorthand uh, for testing a machine for sentience, but it's not actually that. Um, and one of the points that the guy that runs this uh, house, the CEO, is saying is, I'm past the point of a Turing test. I don't care about the Turing test. This is the next thing. Right. So basically, he's there to, to test a machine for sentience. And when he meets the machine, he sees that it has the external form of a girl in her early 20s in some key respects, uh, partly in terms of uh, the machine's silhouette and also in terms of its face and voice. And and then a kind of three and then subsequently four way interaction happens between people in this very contained location. And that that's basically the setup. Yeah. So so the contained location I actually was was something I wanted to talk about. I thought of a lot about your your work has a thread running through it. And the thing that I think that stands out strongly to me, um, if you look at Twenty Eight Days Later, which you wrote, um, and and this film, Sunshine, another film that you wrote, um, The Beach, uh, a novel and then a film. Isolation seems to be a thread in all of these, right? You've got people in various states of somewhat extreme isolation. And 28 Days Later, it's, it's not that people are alone, but, but people are alone. 
essentially, right? You know, what we think of as human beings. Um, in this film, it is very much a physical isolation. You've got a small set of people set apart from, you know, what we would consider just normal society or reality. And on and on. I mean, spaceship and sunshine. And what is it, what is it for you? about isolation or, or I mean, I'm just curious, is there, is there, is there, in, is it necessary? No, it's not. Um, although it is something, uh, I get intrigued by in a sort of repeating way. I think, I think what I'm interested in is, uh, the terms and the situations which lead people to, to break down, uh, maybe in the way they interact with each other, but also in the way they see themselves. And, um, I think the thing about isolation is, or, or you could just step it back it, it because it may be geographic isolation or it may be a kind of personal isolation, the sort of being lonely in a crowd type version. Yeah. Um, but what it is is that people are incredibly susceptible in their behaviour to uh, the absence of modifiers to their behaviour. So, And it happens really quite quickly. Uh, we're incredibly dependent on the people around us to keep us grounded and... Um, I, I encounter this as a writer. Uh, basically, my job is, I see as a, is fundamentally as a writer, is that when I'm working on, say, a screenplay, it's quite easy for me to spend six days in, in relative isolation and, uh, and then find on day five or six, for some reason, I've like got to go to the shop and buy some milk or whatever it is. And in that journey to the shop, it's as if you're, you know, there's something trippy about it and detached from the world and you feel you floated away from everyone somehow. And it's so that the speed at which that happens and the, the speed at which you feel disconnected from the flow of life, I find really fascinating. And uh, I, I think also in my working life, I sometimes observe it. You can see it in people who are powerful and rich and who are celebrities and uh, have a different kind of lack of modifiers around them. Um, so, so broadly speaking, it's that. In the beach, it's a community. It's a sort of inward-looking, uh, self-supporting in terms of its uh, ideology community. And um, sunshine, it's some people in a little box who are a long way from Earth and a long way from their destination. And uh, I think in this film, the isolation extends in as much as that, although there's a few people in a small location, uh, they're also... I think what underlies this film is a question about how you can ever establish what is going on inside someone else's or something else's head. Right. And and when you realise how difficult it is to establish that and how much of what we assume is in someone else's head is actually a projection and may or may not be going on inside their head, you, you can feel really very isolated because you don't know if you are meaningfully interacting with anybody. Um, so it's, right. it's, a, it's that, I guess. I mean, from the get go in this film was it, this from almost the second I started watching it and maybe, you know, I'd watched, I'd seen trailers for it. I knew what the film was generally about, but there is a sense of, um, and you do get to it later in the movie, you get into it, you know, pretty heavily of everything is a, a bit up for grabs. You know, you're presented with this AI that is very human, uh, and very natural in many ways. And, and the characters around that seem questionable in the sense that that you don't know you don't know the intent of the ai but you also don't seem to know the intent of any of the other characters and even even at a point where you've got you know sort of the protagonist of the film you know the the, the guy you would caleb the guy you would consider the the hero right in at least yeah although he's not my protagonist but but right, sure yeah. right the apparent protagonist who's your protagonist ava the machine oh, okay right well 
that sort of, but it sort of flips at some point and it does become clear that that, that she's the protagonist. That's exactly right. There's a, there's a, there's a, like right. a baton pass. It's not, it's not at all, it's not at all clear, right? For no, a good fact, part it, of the film. Well, it, and it's deceptive because it's set up at the beginning that absolutely this young guy is the protagonist. Right. According to the rules of storytelling, there's no doubt. Well, that's, that's sort of the, that's one of the tricks of the film that I, that I, enjoy i mean you you do enjoy it it's also kind of upsetting it's truly upsetting it's you know towards the back half of the film where you start to realize all of the things i thought it sort of works in this in that sensibility of the characters in the film all of the things i thought about you know who these people were in this place starts to starts to flip but but um but even that sort of hero character who seems very sort of pure and innocent um early on there's a sense of of I don't really know. You don't really know what his motivations are and you don't really understand. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a bit where he's, Ava asks him if he's good and the response seems like it could be as much a lie as it is, as it seems true. Right. And I think that's the characters throughout that, that the film are, 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 they're fucking with you essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. Or you feel that they're fucking with you and maybe that no, was no, the intent of it. No, I think that's right. Yeah. But um, there is, there is that flip um, and you do get a sense that the protagonist changes. Uh, and I think it, it's kind of terrifying because you feel like you've moved into a different film in some way, right? Not stylistically, but you start to look back at the rest of it. Um, I'm curious to know, was that always the intent? Was it always that there would be that turn? Yeah, it, just, it was. Although, although from my point of view, what happened was I was always sided with the character of the machine and uh, then what I had to do was keep that hidden for a while and then and then let that be revealed. Right. So I always knew where I was and what I cared about. And I think that um, I, I can see sometimes uh, almost sort of being unable to stop myself showing how much uh, she's the protagonist or where I'm allied. And it's in things that may or may not land with people, but it's to do with where the camera sits and how long it sits there and how reluctant it is to turn away and uh, that kind of thing. Well, but you know, and they don't. So what seems obvious to you is probably hidden to... to yeah, but what you assume is that in film is that kind of grammar has has an unconscious effect. And I think it probably does. I mean, yeah. uh, certainly, you know, where you put a cut, even down to a frame, you know, a 24th or a 25th right. or a second or a whatever pause, A be, pause, one millisecond longer. It, it really makes a difference. Oh. It really, really does. Did Did... I want to talk about the character of Nate. This is the CEO of the Nathan, company. Nathan, yeah. Nathan. Yeah. He's not Nate. He's he referred to as you. Nate in the film, is he? Uh, he, uh, he isn't. Uh, as far as I know, I have to say there's something that really fascinates me about this because uh, it's, it's something that's become a preoccupation to me, which is to do with subjectivity and memory and, uh, um, and what people bring to a narrative, what they want to find there, what they project into it. And, and the very limited degree to which I control that, um, I, I can quantify it as about a 50-50 deal between right. telling the story and hearing the story and people's imagination. Um, I got, uh, I've had some really interesting examples of that with this film, names changing, but also scenes that don't exist. Really? Absolutely, yeah. People talking to me about scenes that just simply aren't in the Give film. Give me an example of a, of a scene that doesn't exist that's been <clears> raised well, to you. I had a very, very strange example of this the other day in another podcast where I was talking to uh, an incredibly articulate um, interviewer, very, very interesting, who who said, and there's this part in the film where they're talking about a Jackson Pollock painting and the guy says, uh, I had my crew make two of these and she starts going on, right, a, a, a section of dialogue that 
I had written as dialogue, but had not shot and had cut out. And I said, oh, well, you've read the script. And she said, no, no, uh, I saw it in the film. And at that point, I started to doubt myself, even uh, though I shot and cut this film. I, this is just a disturbing story. It's, it's really strange. And it's to do with the way memory works and the very fluid nature of memory. And so I now start to think, is it in the film? I'm, pr- I'm pretty sure we didn't do that. But, but am I? And, and in the thing, I really doubt it. And I actually concede the point within the podcast. And I say, well, look, I'm going to assume this is true. And at that moment, I really don't know if it's true or not. Then... Uh, so I do the podcast finish. We talk about the scene that isn't in the film, yeah. uh, which uh, uh, the lady is convinced that she saw in the film. It turns out that a friend of mine back in the UK had, who I had tested the script on because actually because of some of the politics in the, in the, in the thing that I wanted to test. And she was the right person to test it on had, had sent this section of the script to that person. They had read it and assumed that they'd seen it and had conjured it in their mind. She had seen the actual film though. She'd seen the film. She'd read this one bit of script. She had decided now that she had actually seen that and it was in the film and that was in her memory. And I, as the person who, one of the people involved in making the film, could genuinely not remember whether it was in there or not. So the whole thing's just like a mess. So the Nate Nate thing could have happened is what you're saying. Uh, I believe he was called Nate, yes. Yeah, at some point in the film. Probably Are you just more, saying that to appease me now? Or is that- well, abs- I, do, I have no memory of it, but let's say it's true. I feel, I, like, I feel like Caleb at some point calls him Nate, and it's sort of in this, because their relationship as it develops is this extremely uncomfortable. Um, you've got, I, I wrote down notes when I actually don't have them in front of me, but I'm going to go from memory as is probably appropriate here. Um, the character of Nathan or Nate, as yeah. some people have heard him or the Nate refer to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is, is like, is like a, a new type of, in my opinion, kind of a new type of villain. And, and I don't know that there's a, there are a lot of examples of this, but this intelligent thug that he comes off in the film, almost like a, so aggro, so aggressive. So man, he's extremely manly. The first, I think the first time you see him, he's exercising, he's punching he's, a bag, he's yeah. punching a bag. And there's several scenes, you know, he's got this huge beard, Oscar Isaac. I mean, you know, very handsome man, very manly man. Right. Mm-hmm. And the character that comes in, Caleb is, is, a perfect nerd, right? He's a skinny, pale, blonde-haired kid, you know, fresh face, sort of shy. Um, and their relationship immediately goes into this, um, it's so uncomfortable when they talk to each other, you know, because, because you know, clearly there's, they're trying to figure each other out. There's a bit of, from Nathan, who is the CEO of the company mm-hmm. this kid works for, is some, it's just some general judging, sort of like you're this little, sort of, you don't understand the the, wor- the world the way I do. But it becomes very aggressive and it gets increasingly aggressive, right? And it's subtly aggressive. And I think the when I think of him referring to him as Nate, what why it stood out to me is because it's almost um it's like the subtle jab I thought that the character well, was making. It would making. be assertive if he did that. Yeah. And and uh it's interesting because there are times where he attempts to to be assertive and to gain some kind of primacy, some sort of front foot position yeah. within the scene. Um and then there's a little bit of fencing between them effectively. Yeah. But so let's, so that character, Nathan, um, to me, it resonated. I mean, I come from the world of technology and I've covered it for many years and it resonated on many levels. And I'd, I'm kind of curious to know what your thinking was as you wrote that character, because he, at times he's very Steve Jobs ish, you know, you, he almost in some way, some scenes looks a little bit like Steve Jobs, a younger Steve Jobs. Um, certainly there's like the Google guys come to mind when you, when you hear him talk and you think about this thing that he's working on this AI, he owns a search engine company. It's called blue book. Um, and they, it's the world's largest search engine. So there's clearly some ties there. Were you thinking of 
I mean, did you have to think of these characters from the world of technology and startups? I didn't uh, actually in truth, because I don't, I don't really know any of those people. I, I know exact, I mean, I, I, by which I don't mean, I, clearly I don't know them personally, but I don't really know their, their public persona either. I mean, I'm aware exactly who Steve Jobs is and I know he would give these keynote speeches, but I've never watched any of them. Uh, I, I would not be able to recognize Elon Musk or Sergey Brin or yeah. uh, Larry Page. Yeah. If you showed me photos, I wouldn't know who that is. Um, I've got big blind spots, I guess. Um, he was to an extent, though, in elements, he was kind of representing tech companies, those I'm more familiar with. So he's got this kind of dude, bro, over familiar way of speaking, which is related to me to the way those companies present themselves to us, which is very much as your mates. You right. know? They're, they're things you hang out with and who have a kind of aspirational lifestyle attached to them. But the lifestyle is a hipster lifestyle. It's about listening to music and being at the right bar and being at the right beach and uh, and that kind of thing. And um, and what that does is obfuscate the fact that they are absolutely massive tech companies who are not your friends. Right. There's, there's a complete disconnect between those two states. Now, now that uneasy feeling that gives you, I think, is is then represented by Nathan because he is, in some respects, very over familiar and also uh, sinister. Right. And, and, but that is, but that was, I made a bunch of notes about this is, is I take it your view of technology might not be, uh, totally favorable. No, I want to be absolutely clear about this actually, because I know how that can come across. I'm not remotely Luddite about it. I I don't feel that way at all. If anything, the opposite that there's like where Google is concerned, for example, I, I, there are things about Google that I really don't just like, but I kind of love and respect and and feel excited by it. For example, um, the work they're doing in AI. They're spending really stratospheric amounts of money researching and developing AI, which I find ex- interesting and exciting. And I'm I'm looking forward to the day when maybe there might be such a thing as a self aware machine. That that's something that fascinates me. Um, you don't write it that way. Well, uh, I, I could dispute that because right. I, it, I mean, it's a bit like the memory thing. It depends how you approach it. Right. It's a gray area. Well, there is. There, yeah. But just to finish, what there is is ambivalence. I think the ambivalent, it's proper ambivalence. And, and it, it's important to state that. Um, so like NASA, they're trying to go to the moon these companies. That's what they're trying to do. And I like that. I want to go to the moon. Right. Or I want someone to go there. But they're also incredibly powerful. They are unbelievably powerful. And as far as I can tell, they have no meaningful oversight. Uh, there are no real checks and balances. Now, the conversation we were having about humans and a lack of modifiers, that also exists with corporations. It exists with groups of humans. Unmodified anything is bad news where humans are concerned. And we see that again and again and again and again. So uh, it's not about saying these companies are doing something wrong and it's not about saying they're not doing anything good. It's just saying they're so powerful that they need to be observed. That It's, it's really right. as simple as that. Well, there is – I mean regulation is nascent because they're so new. I mean I feel like in a way you almost don't know how to regulate something like Google because you don't know what the boundaries of what is – acceptable and useful and beyond that yeah except you can have some pretty quick pretty educated guesses well, i yeah. mean a board of ethics wouldn't be a bad start with with people that are from outside the company as well as people from within right well they have i'm i mean i'm 
They do. I assume they have a, a cluster of people who are making some ethical uh, calls. Yeah, but there's no transparency. That, that, yeah. the, in the assumption that you just made is, is exactly the problem. There needs to be some transparency with this stuff. The degree of power is so extreme that you cannot rely on internal self-regulation. You just can't. Well, I love, I love that um, in the film you casually – it's very casual that um, – there's a point where Nathan talks about collecting data, collecting facial expressions and all of this, you know, to actually power the AI and, and have it understand humanity. And it's it's referenced, you know, it's clearly referencing the NSA and all of the kind of data collection well, that they've been doing. In unwittingly, Co- because that was written before Snowden made those brilliant revelations. Oh, was it really? Yeah. Well, yeah, then we, that's a, you, you can't make a, a bad, film probably, that quick. That's probably a bad side. You know, that, that it's so casual in our thought that it's, that you've written it into a, a film, a completely fictional film and in reality. It's yeah. Al- al- although I think. Uh, although Snowden hadn't made those revelations, which for me is one of the most important things that's happened over the last few years, actually, uh, um, uh, we all knew it. That is to say, when when I was discussing the script with people or sending it to people, um, uh, for example, many people would say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I always tape over the camera on my yeah. laptop." And so oh. th- there's a there was a sort of we have been concerned about this either on an unconscious level or a conscious level for quite some time. And I think it's, it's, it's seated in just some very simple stuff of being, uh, a fight of feeling a sense of unease where we have machines that we don't understand, but seem to understand quite a lot about us. I think that it, it, you don't need anything beyond that to start feeling concerned. I think. Right. Well, I mean, I think people are feeling concerned now, except to your point, <laughs> do what you, do you do? Can I ask you? Do you? Think I, that? Feel, I feel. I don't feel. I feel. Uh, what concerned that people? I feel are concerned, concerned, but uh, but I, I think, think people in, I know are concerned. But I think if you go, and I've actually done this, you go out in the street and you say, "Does it? Do you know the NSA is reading your emails and does that bother you?" Most people say, and I actually did this mm-hmm. um, w- right after the Snowden stuff. We were doing a video thing, and people up and down. Every almost every person I asked said, "Well, yeah, of course they are. No shit, of course they're reading our emails. Like it wasn't a big deal." That it yeah. didn't, that it didn't See, seem that, impactful. And that's more the sense I get. Oh, that's uh, true. And, and, it, and it's, it's like a kind of lotus eater type mentality. But I think, uh, I think people, there, there are, there's a, a relatively important and powerful segment of humanity that does care. The question is, um, can they do anything about it? I mean, the question is, is there, I mean, to me, governments are so much more, uh, I mean, Google's scary. I'm much more concerned about what the government might okay, do. Okay, so can I do a counter to that? Because yeah. I feel exactly the other way around. I mean, it, it's not exactly who you should be most scared of. I think that's a that, that's a complicated thing. But um, one thing in terms of these modifiers, if people feel sufficiently pissed off about the situation with Snowden and the NSA or GCHQ in my country or whatever it happens to be, uh, those are government agencies and we have a mechanism within our respective countries to get rid of governments. You can vote them out. It's a, there's an electoral system. That must be nice. Well, you do have it. It does it. Well, you do have it. I, I, well, I don't know about that. Okay. Well, but putting that to the side, there is a system, whether it's employed properly or not, or whether people right. care sufficiently right. about it, there is a regular election cycle and people can demonstrate their disgust with governments by voting them out. And in this country, they've done it before because Nixon and his administration was not likely to get reelected after Watergate. So, so I don't see the equivalent of that with private companies. There is a notional uh, capitalist consumer power that your, your vote is according to what you buy. Right. 
not voting in that in those terms or 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 abstaining effectively or or voting against means not having a credit card as well as not having a computer a telephone right. uh, a laptop a tablet and it, so where's the vote where's but I think the to your, I think to your point there is a vote is except it's similar to um the choice we get in government which is You've got Apple or Google or Microsoft. You've got like your selection of different governments of technology companies, but there's only there's only a degree of difference between them. And I mean, I think you, if you look at, I'm not going to disagree with that, but but I I just want to say that there is entrenched in law a mechanism by which citizens can do something. Yeah. Now now whether they have a meaningful choice or whether they exercise that properly is another matter. Yeah. But there is actually something that can be. Referred to. There's a system. There's a system, yeah. and and it's and it's a system which is backed up actually by some powerful legislation. That that, for example, if if a government in your country tried to say we're going to get rid of that legislation, they really wouldn't be able to. Now, so so it's it's the I worry about it because I worry about the capitalist free market aspect of this, which is essentially unregulated. It's either unregulated for ideological reasons or it's unregulated just because they're so powerful that nobody can get to them, like oil or whatever it happens to be. So, But listen, man, uh, it, <laughs> what we choose to be scared about, yeah. uh, you, there's there's plenty to, you can get rattled about. It, it's it's just, um, uh, I I feel worried about the lack of oversight there. But, you, but it's legit. I'm not going to say... Uh, feel mellow about the Snowden stuff because yeah. I don't feel mellow about it either. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more. Cool. These days you can get practically everything on demand, like this podcast. You can listen wherever you want, when it's convenient for you, whatever you're doing. So why are you still going to the post office and dealing with their limited hours when you can get postage on demand with stamps.com? Anything you can do at the post office, you can do right now from your desk with stamps.com. You can buy and print U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer and printer. And unlike the post office, stamps.com never closes. So you can get postage whenever you need it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, my wife actually sends a lot of packages. Uh, She uses stamps.com, big fan of it. She's a big fan of mailing things. Uh, She's been encouraging me to mail more things. And uh, I got to say, stamps.com. Is going to be the thing that will allow me to unlock the magic of sending items to other people. Right now, use my name, Joshua, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial, and you get a $110 bonus offer. It includes a digital scale and up to $55 of free postage. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Literally stop what you're doing right now and go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Joshua. That's stamps.com and enter Joshua. I want to mention Squarespace again. They're a great sponsor and also a great service. I think I've said this before. I'm into the internet. I love the internet, but I'm not good at building things on the internet with my own hands. And, uh, you know, I've launched many large websites, but when it comes to doing stuff for myself, I'm sort of in need of assistance. And uh, that's where Squarespace can come in. If you're a person like me who loves the internet, but maybe isn't super good at making things on the internet, you might want to check out Squarespace. It's a simple, powerful, and beautiful product. They have 24-7 support via live chat and email. And for only $8 a month, you get a free domain if you buy Squarespace for the year. They have responsive design, so your website scales to look great on any device. 
commerce. Every website comes with a free online store. Cover pages, a feature that allows you to set up a beautiful one-page online presence in minutes. And it's great for photography, sites, and portfolios. If you want to check it out, you can do it right now. Start a trial with no credit card required and start building your website today. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code Joshua to get 10% off your first purchase and to show support for this podcast. Thanks, Squarespace, for your support of tomorrow. Squarespace, build a beautiful Okay, we're back uh, with Alex Garland. Uh, we're talking about, we're talking, well, we, we segued into or fell into a conversation about governments. I want to go back to the, uh, uh, and tell me, by the way, if you get bored of talking about the film, because if we can't, there are other things I want to talk about. Other you things should you, tell me if you, you get bored. Uh, well, I'm, we're almost, I'm almost there. All right. Um, but I want to, that, that Nathan character just, I think was fascinating because there, I saw something else. You were talking about big global ideas, this big global idea of these companies and what they represent and their potential for uh, misuse or abuse of the things that they create and sort of the, and, and misuse of the things that we create using their tools or the things that we do with their tools. But that character resonated with me on a whole other level, which is this very, it felt very representative of a mood that you see on the internet, something you see now, which is, and you hear people say things like programmer, or you see something like Gamergate, you see this like extremely male, chauvinistic, um, ag- almost aggro, especially on the internet where you talk about those sort of, um, the rules, there are very few, right, in behavior for how people behave with each other on the internet. And... Um, it almost felt like one of the things you, you you were saying, and maybe this was unconscious. I don't know if you meant to do this, but or subconscious, uh, not unconscious. Um, it seemed like you were saying the logical conclusion if you've let if you let like the startup guys or the programmers of the world have their go all the way through their creative process through like the startup phase into you know creating a massive company that's a search giant that they end up basically. And this is going to give away a bit of the film, but I don't think too much. They'll basically make sex robots. They'll basically make like female sex robots that they can abuse and use. Yeah. So I, I'm not, uh, <laughs> I mean, there's a whole bunch of things. I wouldn't want to, I, I mean, I genuinely wouldn't want to target programmers, right, okay. which, is, which, which is a phrase I've only recently learned. Yeah. Even. I'm not saying generalized, but it did feel like there was a thread that you could take, carry through to this logical, horrible th- conclusion. Th- th- there's two separate things. I think one of them is, is got nothing to do with programmers. It's just to do with people. Yeah. It's absolutely just to do with people, which is, which is if something is possible, someone somewhere will be trying to do it. And I think that you could look at some of the issues surrounding cloning and say, if it is possible to clone humans, regardless of the ethical issues, someone at some point is going to try and do it. It's right. just going to happen. Right. And uh, so, so that's, that's just to do with the way humans are. It's not specific to a subgroup of, of humans. In terms of sex robots, I, I get really fascinated by this because um, – there's sentient machines, which is a speculation that happens within the context of the film. And then there's sex robots. And robots, where we have lots of robots, are not necessarily sentient. In fact, none of them are sentient. Right, right. And in fact, there's tons of sex robots that already exist. Yeah. There's vibrators. A vibrator is a sex robot. Yeah. And uh, it's it's only got one part of the overall thing, but it is the most important a, part of the sex robot. Well, quite. So so there you but, go. But there's I think a sex robot, robot. I'm nothing... painting with a broad stroke on robot. But what I mean is that 
um, you've got this culmination of incredible technology. You know, they go through, they talk about the brain and the body and sort of, you know, there's mention of how the, how Ava is charged and things that are highly technical, but then it sort of develops it. It goes to a place, a very, and I consider it to be a very dark place where um, the worst that you might expect of a man who could create essentially, li- let's say life it, at his, at will and to his like, you know, to whatever form he mm. pleased, took it to this sort of immediately, you know, very bad, very dark place that is, and maybe that's just about men. Maybe that's just about humans, but I don't know that everybody would have gone that path. I feel like that character has a through line that I saw really clearly. Got it. I, I mean, so my, my thought process was with this film was that it started with a simple thing, which is just an interest in machine sentience, AI, strong AI. And, uh, and then understanding that if you talk about, self-awareness in a machine you are then just generally talking about self-awareness so you're also talking about humans so by talking about one and the issues of one thing you're also talking about the other machines and humans now you're talking about the same thing the second you're talking about humans and consciousness you're talking about interactions between humans right. and the, the way we gauge each other's consciousness and and how we relate to it and uh, and also where consciousness might come from which is imperatives to do with social interaction and so now you're talking about actual relationships between humans and also machines and in fact anything sentient and uh, as you keep broadening that out eventually you will encompass in the general thing that you're dragging in sexuality and sex and uh, the urges relating to that now there's a separate thing then happening within the narrative which is it is useful for nathan to present himself to caleb as something from which the robot needs to be rescued. And he has all sorts of ways of doing that uh, by presenting himself as implicitly violent, punching a bag, misogynistic, uh, slightly unbalanced, or maybe increasingly unbalanced, uh, misquoting things back in a megalomaniac way, references to do with God that are sort of oblique that become specific once he's twisted it as reflecting back Are you saying those are him. deceptions in the film? Yes, they are. Oh, because that's that's but, not clear. Well, yeah, but no, no, it's not clear. Right, it's it's not clear, and 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 actually, the lack of clarity is one of the things I'm interested in, and and uh, was specifically avoiding certain kinds of signposts in terms of where the film positions itself. Right. Uh, so, the the questions that for the conversations that Oscar Isaac and I used to have in in planning to shoot this, uh, partly so that we weren't having complex conversations about motivation on set because we didn't have time, but, but also just to do with being on the same page and agreeing with each other and, and making the most of this was, uh, is this a mask that Nathan is presenting? When is the mask slipping? And when the mask slips, what's actually there? Is what's behind the mask exactly the same as the mask? Is he caricaturing something that is actually present in himself? Or is he amplifying it? Is he, how damaged is he? I think he is unarguably damaged, by the way. I think that there it's not ambiguous. Right. This is a damaged person. But, uh, but, but where are you seeing the real person and what he really feels and really thinks? When at one point he slams his hand down on the table, uh, and as, and is abusive and unpleasant to another character in the house, is he, is he finding an excuse at that moment to present himself in that way? Um, and so th- th- there's a whole bunch of questions that I then don't want to be too specific about where the film sits with right. regard to it, partly because 
the truest intention behind this movie was that it was an ideas film and then it would present a bunch of questions that would be thoughtfully presented and reasonably presented that people could, if they felt like it, then talk about. Right. You don't want to to tidy it up at the end. But some of it I can't tidy up because it's not within my ability on an intellectual level or on any level because because I I literally don't know the answer to the question that's been posed. Right. I, I think... If you if you just look at I mean this is actually discussed explicitly within the film but even if it wasn't if you look at Ava the the machine in the representation of her I think it raises a question about gender just in the apprehension of Ava it does because she appears to have a gender right. but at the same time you know she doesn't have a gender which means what what is gender where does it reside and so in particular is it but there is a there is a kind of description of her genitalia let's just say for lack of a better term which is implicitly and explicitly female uh well to the if a if a vibrator is explicitly male i mean do you attribute a gender to a vibrator the point i'm making is that there are no immediate answers that one can reasonably make of the options that exist with ava I would say one is that the gender resides in consciousness. So there's right. such a thing as right. a male and female mind. Right. There's organs and then there's, there's a, there's a, there's, of there's a physical thing, right. as you said, genitalia, right. but also breasts and, uh, and face, eyelashes, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. There's the physical appearance that we, do, do we find it there? Or is it something that is conferred? Um, it is by the fact that we treat Ava as a woman that makes her a woman. Now, which of those three things is it? And, and which of them could you at the end of the film or fuck the film just in general? How can anyone in us, all of these positions are at least open to some reasonable conversation? So, so I, I don't see why one would even seek to wrap that up in a bow at the end of this narrative. <laughs> right. And you don't, but that was right. your intent. I mean, those were the questions you wanted to raise. Those were. Abs- that was absolutely explicitly the intent, and that was one of many parts of the intent. Right. I mean, I, as I said, the thing I liked about this film as as an idea was was that from this very very simple narrative. In fact, I think you you effectively alluded to this at, at the beginning by saying it's not really twist based. It's it's a it's a, it, it, you're, you're exactly right. It's an incredibly linear narrative. If there's a twist, it's that we don't know. And I think this, you talked about this earlier, you don't know what someone's thinking and you don't know what they really want or need. And if there's any twist, it's that. I agree. I assumed that I knew that people wanted things and needed things in this film, people or robots or whatever, or AI rather, but my assumptions were not correct, or at least I'm not sure they were correct on many levels. Yeah. No, which, which it does perfectly. And in an extremely... I'd say upsetting manner, but what's upsetting about it's not it's not a um you know it's not a necessarily violent film. There's a violence to it. I mean, it has an undercurrent of violence. There's I a think. latent violence, yeah, yeah that yeah. starts right at the beginning and carries totally. through. I mean, it's completely unsettling in the way that I think the best, um, you know, it's horrific in a slow way. You know, in the way the best thrillers are. You know, the best uh, David Lynch. I don't know if you're a fan, but absolutely, his yeah. films have just a thread of extreme violence but almost nothing happens often. Absolutely. And and that's the way this film feels in which, so it's very satisfying to me. The isolation was also very satisfying because those are the kinds of movies that I was, grew up on and love. Um, but it does at the end, um, it is not one of those, 
There is no wrapping up. There's there's a couple of things that I did attempt to answer in an explicit way. Or, or no, I shouldn't say explicit because it's not actually explicit. But there are things that I attempted to answer in a way that should one be interested, one would be able to find an embedded answer that is actually taking a position. It's saying this is where the film stands. Um, I have to say that a lot of that is about One's, one's ability to access that depends on how you position yourself within the narrative. That is to say, if you ally yourself to the young man and don't have the baton pass that you were talking about, the shifting thing, then you might not see these uh, end presentations of answers. Right. Um, but if you if you shift and ally yourself with a the machine, then, then they will be there. And they're, they're questions such as, at the end of the day, after all these long conversations that they have, is she sentient? Is she self-aware? And also, does she have empathy? Right. Because I think probably those two things end up being what we value most in each other. Right. I mean, the, 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 the um, you know, without saying, being explicit about this, where, where it ends up is in such a complex place. I mean, the, the question is that because you don't get the simple answer of, yes, she's sentient. But if, from a, if you just look at the actions you go, obviously, yes, I have the answer, right? If, if there's a Turing, if the film, you know, is about a Turing test or whatever this test is, the viewer feels, I can very easily feel, yes, I know now this, this thing is motivated by something that is, feels human and natural and, and um, like a desire, right? Yeah. Not like a machine figuring things out. I mean, uh, it, it, I'm not it, saying that's the answer. Sorry, no, no, but no. It, it oh, does no, feel no. like you can look at it that way. Yeah, sure. I mean, I I don't mind talking about this stuff with you. I mean, it's kind of your call, really. It's your your show, you know. <laughs> right. But, um, I mean, I, I think what I feel is there's a couple of things that Ava does that that to me demonstrate sentience. Um, there's a moment where you see a smile, where it's hard, where there's no one to trick. And so why would she be smiling if it wasn't a representation of an internal mind state, for example? I think there's another thing. And by the way, to an extent, this is bullshit because what the fuck do I know, right? But <laughs> but this this is from, from what I... Good of, point. You know, yeah. I mean... The, the, You're the, not an AI expert. I'm not an AI expert and I'm not a consciousness expert. All I'm, I'm just a layman who's interested, who tries to think about it and write about it. But it did occur to me that it would be pretty difficult to understand what was going on in another consciousness unless you also had one yourself. Right. And I think there are times when Ava is correctly figuring out what is going on inside someone else's head that, that I sort of think, how could she do that if she wasn't sentient? Right. So now, now I don't, someone might say, oh, no, no, you could and demonstrate it. Like, I really have no idea, but it seems like a reasonable proposition or at least something that you could reasonably discuss. No, I think that's true. Uh, it's just that the... Um the situation that is, is so extreme that's presented, it's it's difficult to imagine. I mean, it's difficult to imagine. You can imagine yourself in that position, and I think you can imagine yourself having the same reaction that Ava has, and and so it's it it makes it it makes her character seem much more human. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about one more thing. I mean, we're probably close to being. I mean, I know you're you're very cool. tired and you want to, but I want to talk about because we I said we were gonna talk about games, and I actually in this during this conversation, it occurred to me there's something you you're a gamer. You currently play games, right? I'm assuming mm. you know, like Xbox or whatever. Yeah, you've written yeah. you've written for games and or overseen some writing for games. Well, I I I was employed as a writer for hire, uh, where there was an existing game with levels and scenes that were required, and they said. 
uh, will you write the dialogue uh, within these parameters? And I said, yes, because I was looking to get an in in the games industry. I've been sort of knocking on the door for a while. It's actually quite a closed shop, um, or at least it was for me. I feel like, when um, was this? Uh, well, that was like, uh, I guess it was just before making Never Let Me Go. So maybe five years ago. That long ago. Yeah, six years ago. Seems like you wouldn't, for you, writing for games would not be something that would be difficult. Oh, uh, well, there, there's uh, an implicit compliment in that. So thanks. Well, but, I mean, I'm, you're, I mean, your your storytelling is is certainly you're capable of, of very uh, uh, intense and exciting storytelling. So it seems like if I were a games developer, I'd say. God, we can get Alex Garland to write a story for us. Uh, uh, I'm well, shocked to hear. I guess I'm saying I'm shocked to hear. Well, You're so fucking talented <laughs> and handsome. I don't know why they wouldn't just let you write games. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. I'll tell you what, though. I, that I ha- what happened? So I've been fascinated in this for a really, really long time. And last summer, uh, I eventually played a game which I'd been wanting to play for a while called The Last of Us. Oh, uh, that's that's the one of the greatest it it really is i uh, i i just fell for that game really hard yeah. and I, I think what it did was it demonstrated in a way i'd been waiting and waiting for someone to demonstrate this that what a brilliant narrative medium games are yeah this is i had the same thought when i played it it yeah. was the i felt like the first time because games have narratives and you're just like, fuck, just this dialogue is fucking awful and I don't believe in any of these characters. But that one felt like, not to cut you off, but yeah. I had a similar reaction. And when I finished it, it was just like, God. It's I powerful. Felt, like it, in my guts, I felt the, the game, you know, the story. A- absolutely. And it's, it's beautifully written and it's beautifully acted and it's beautifully shot and it's beautifully directed and the sound design. And you just, it's just a really exemplary piece of storytelling. Yeah. I found it amazingly powerful. And uh, – the second I finished it, I kind of stared into space for about 10 minutes and then I went back and I started it again. Yeah. Uh, and the the only game I've ever done that on before was a game called Bioshock, which oh, is yeah. also a narrative Amazing game. writing. Amazing uh, writing yeah. and has a, a proper narrative yeah. twist. Like We're talking about twist. There is a twist in that game yeah. about two thirds of the way through that is so elegant and so beautifully landed and constructed. So, um, Have you played Bioshock Infinity? Is that the one setting on the clouds? Uh, I I have. Uh, Did you finish it? No, oh. I got right to the very end. And you should finish it. I, I've got a personal problem with boss fights. Oh, I I hate them. I hate <laughs> I boss, like no, boss. No, 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 no. <laughs> this is actually one of my. I, I'm with you on that because I get it. I actually play games on easy. Uh, a friend of mine who's actually a, an editor, you know, writes about games, was like, just play it on easy because you want to experience the game. You don't want to sit like get your skills up at being good at the game. I, I don't know if you, if you're the same way, but that's a game. There are these bot, like the one on the ship and it's like this extended boss fight. And you're like, you know what? I don't, was exactly I just want to see where the story goes at this point. Like I know that I can eventually blow this thing up, but I'd actually rather have it just blow up for me so I can see where this thing. That, that was exactly the point I got. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't get past yeah. that. And I have to say, I mean, for any gamers who are listening to, uh, that's kind of weird because, uh, there's a game I've played Dark Souls and Dark Souls 2, which is a fantastic, both very, very difficult games and have completed both and, and really enjoyed the experience. And there's some horrific boss fights in that. But for some reason, I felt engaged in those games yeah. in a way that I didn't, yeah, to be blunt about it. It's, I just, it's tedious though. I know the fight. I think I know the fight you're talking about. There's a, a piece right at the end of it and it's so tedious. I play, I must've played it like 20 times. Are we talking times about Bioshock Infinite? Bioshock yeah, yeah, Infinite. It's, it's like there's like oh, a- Bioshock Infinite. That's yeah, there's, yeah, there's like a- 
it's, it's like a big platform. And yeah, you're, you're on a ship and yeah, you have to keep that. running around That's the it. sort it's of perimeter. And I just didn't give a fuck. Yeah. At a certain point, I thought, what the fuck am I've I given up on many games. The new Alien game, I basically gave up because- Isolation. It, yeah. yeah, Isolation, which has an incredible mood and sort of a great, the mm-hmm. backdrop is the story. But then it's like, it's so difficult and so tiring to keep playing the same thing over and but over But this again. is the really interesting balance you get with games. And it, it's why there's an extra level of artistry that is not actually required in film or novel or theater or anything like that, which is that there is, there is a proper in, interactive involvement with a player. And if the game is not careful, something becomes a problem-solving exercise. Right. And the problem-solving exercise splinters the mood. Yeah. And uh, when one of the things I found so amazing about The Last of Us was that after playing it through, I, I guess on normal, I then played it through on hard. And uh, in hard, it was better. And somehow it never became insurmountable obstacles it always seemed fair yeah it it was it felt so really beautifully balanced game and uh it it, so amongst all the other things it was doing brilliantly it was also dealing with the gameplay beautifully on the last of us one of the things i remember there's a there's a uh, there's a boss fight where you play as the little girl yes and it's and it's violent it's really scary and really violent and i remember when i was playing it i i I had it was it it was hard too it was hard to, to, to defeat the boss and i remember thinking what I felt more than anything was not anger about not being able to get through the level, but how bad I felt for the character that I had to keep going back into this, this battle. It's so interesting, isn't it? And I, I remember that. I, I, it's, it's, it's when they're running around the yeah, cafeteria as it starting. starts to yeah, go on fire yeah, with yeah. the restaurant. Yeah. It's interesting that these, it's, it's interesting to talk about those same moments because I don't actually have conversations like those with many people. Most people I know no, in game are avid gamers. I'm not an avid gamer. I love them, but I, I look for these types of games. Yeah, Anyhow, but you've on. played through it and, and that, yeah. that's interesting. I mean, uh, I'd, I'd love that game to be more widely disseminated for people to realize just how good it is yeah. and what a powerful bit of storytelling. Well, I, yeah. But what I remember there is I just wanted to kill that guy. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, the, it's emotional. It's yeah. not a, it's not a battle of skill. Yeah. It's a battle of emotion. You actually put, you feel like you're in the, sh- in the shoes of this character you do. that has to defeat this quite horrible. I mean, the setting is, I have to say that makes, I actually bought the version for the PS4 because I'd played it on the PS3 Same. and then I went and got it again and started playing it again on the PS4. Oh, I only played it on the PS4. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, oh, so you've, so recently then. No, you, I came to it late. It was last yeah, summer. Yeah. And, and actually I bought in truth, I bought a PS4 just to play it yeah. because I got so frustrated that I wasn't able to play this game that I knew I was going to love. Yeah. And the, the weirdest thing in some respects was that when I played it, it then exceeded my expectations. Oh yeah. My expectations were pretty high. Uh, I mean, you're dead on there and there's very few games like it, almost no games like it. And so, and so, so this, does this mean that you're going to be, do you want to be writing for games? I'd love to. I mean, the, the idea of being able to work on a game like that, where it's, it's putting a certain emphasis on storytelling and character and performance and yeah. stuff would just be, uh, I mean, a truly kind of thrilling prospect from my point of view. But I've got to say, I just want to say, cause that sounds like I'm angling for a job. <laughs> I, the, the, the thing about it is, is that, uh, I don't think I would do it as well as The Last of Us. And uh, I am more than happy to be a recipient of the game right? because because it's so rewarding for me to play a game like that. One of the things that's been pissing me off about this press tour is that there's a game back home that I've downloaded but I haven't switched on called Bloodborne that I'm just desperate to oh, play. Oh, everybody's talking about Bloodborne. Right, I'm fucking dying to play that game. <laughs> and and uh, much more than I'd want to work on them, I want to play them. Right. So, so, uh, I don't want to, uh, yeah, I'm not sending out my CV. Right. But it's a, but it's a, this is what I was going to say. It's a unique challenge. I mean, you, you've, um, 
actually, you might be better suited to this challenge than a lot of writers because getting back to the way the film wraps and the way lots of your other films that you've written wrap, I mean, actually, maybe all of them, if you think about it, they're not clean. It isn't, doesn't have all the answers. And I think one of the most difficult things in games is that it, it, it requires that you resolve, you know, it feels like gaming It goes from, you know, level one to level 10, and then you resolve the thing and you have those answers. I think the last of us does this and that it doesn't give you all the answers, but I also feel like it's a challenge for a writer must be a challenge for a writer to, how do you create an open ended, you know, first off, there are many avenues in the game yeah, itself. The branching narrative yeah. is the thing that is the most problematic, yeah. I suspect. I mean, you can go for, I guess you can go from beginning and end, but then everything in between, you've got to allow for there to be enough freedom for a player that they feel they can they're invested in it i believe so yeah. but not so much that they it's you don't have a story although i think that games went down a bit of a blind alley with this in some respects in as much as that you do not need a branching narrative is exponentially complicated and uh so you and you there was there was a belief that that's what you needed to do and i think there was an there was too much of a sense that that characters needed to be blank mm. so that people could project onto them right. and and uh there was such a lot of evidence that this wasn't true say lara croft which clearly most people playing tomb raider were not remotely like lara croft and and Speak so yourself, <laughs> sure. but uh but but so there was lots of evidence this wasn't the case and yet the industry clung on to it right. and one of the things again that i really loved about the last of us was it doesn't do that it doesn't really have a branching narrative. Right. It actually has a linear narrative. It just tells it beautifully. And it does what books and films and theatre and television have been doing forever, which is uh, allowing people to to inhabit the character that isn't them and feel confident with that. Right. Um, because none of us are um, uh, people living in that zombie apocalypse. And that's no, fine. Unfortunately for us. Sure. Uh, uh, and unfortunately for me, I, I, we have to wrap up. Um, I got to say, I feel like they're, I, I want to keep there are many other things I want to talk about. Maybe for your next film, you'll come back to America and you'll, you'll come on the podcast. But Alex, thank you so much no, for thank joining you us. Very much. Uh, and, and thank you the listener for uh, sticking around for this conversation. Uh, and I'll be back next week. As always, I wish you the very best, even though a tragic event awaits you. 